This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. This week, we're in the 13th century to tell the story of the woman at the centre of the 1265 siege of Dover Castle. Eleanor de Montfort was the wife of the powerful Earl of Leicester, Simon de Montfort. He had led a baronial opposition to King Henry III, which spilled out into conflict in 1263. A year into the war, Henry and his heir, Prince Edward, were captured at the Battle of Lewis, and Simon became the de facto ruler of England. But Prince Edward escaped from captivity in May 1265 and began to turn the tide of the war. In August, Eleanor's husband and son were killed at the Battle of Evesham and Eleanor was left isolated in her stronghold of Dover Castle. Joining us now to help pick up the story is English Heritage Curator of Collections and Interiors for the South East Region, Catherine Bedford. Hello, Catherine. Hello. Catherine, it's quite a dramatic plot, isn't it? One woman and her supporters hold up in one of England's most iconic castles as her dead husband's rebellion begins to fall. How desperate a situation was this for Eleanor? Yes, absolutely. It's a completely catastrophic reversal of fortune from being in a position where her con- her family is effectively controlling the country for a short amount of time. She's now gone to being a disgraced rebel. She's a widow. Her family is in danger and she's got to work out what she's going to do next. But I mean, she's a woman who had considerable personal fortitude. The evidence suggests that she was an assertive woman who had up until this point been relatively well known for her determination to do things her own way. She's come into conflict with a number of different men over different things in the past, particularly finances. And she actually um, received a letter from a Franciscan Adam Marsh, who was a friend of her family, reproving her for the quarrels and instructing her to act in moderation and be more submissive towards her husband. So this is something that she is perhaps more capable than some others to deal with. Okay, sounds like a very strong woman. Before we get a bit more into her character traits, can you tell us how long the de Montforts have effectively had control of England up until this point? Around about a year. So not very long then, really? Not very long. No. So the baronial rebellion against King Henry III is rather quickly scuppered. (laughs) Yes. Okay, let's find out a bit more about Eleanor, this strong, passionate woman. Where and when was she born, the young Eleanor? She was born in Gloucester in a, probably the towards the end of 1216. It might have been very early in 1217. Okay. And her family background? What was that like? She was the youngest child of King John, but she never actually met her father. Her mother was pregnant with her at the point when King John died, so she was born after his death. And her upbringing took place against a background of her elder brother being a child king and the aftermath of the First Baron's War, an earlier civil war. So this is a very much a family feud then, as well as a political one. Yes. One of the fascinating things about medieval history is how potentially personal a lot of the conflicts can be. We've explained, obviously, that uh, she was married to the leader of the barons, Simon de Montfort, but this was her second marriage. What can you tell us about the first one, though? Her first marriage took place in 1224, when she was probably only about eight years old. 
and she was married to William Marshall the Younger, Earl of Pembroke, who at the time was in his mid-thirties. So this was very much a political marriage. It was set up by the councillors of her brother, Henry III, in order to bolster his position as king by tying an extremely important baron to the royal family through marriage. But given her age, she obviously they did not become husband and wife in a physical sense at that point. She was in a completely separate household from her husband for the first five years of their marriage. And she didn't actually really start to spend any time with him until five years later when she was 13. Ah, right. So it's one of those um, political ones. And of course, looking at that now it, through the prism of today's events, one would think that that was, you know, illegal. <laughs> it, it has a very different connotation. At this point, between 12 to 14 was not unreasonable. Eight is was very young and there was absolutely no expectation that that would be in any way a physical marriage. It was purely a political joining of families at that stage. How did the marriage end then? William died in 1231 when Eleanor was around 13. When Eleanor was around 15, I misspoke there. So at that point, she'd only really been spending any amount of time with her husband for a year or so. So she's a teenager when he dies. Is she left anything in a will by him, by William? As his widow, she's entitled to a third of his estate during her lifetime. So if she marries and has other children, they don't inherit. This is a purely lifetime thing. And given the extent of William Marshall's estate, that accounted for around £800 a year for life, which at the time is a very considerable amount of money. However, there were several years of conflict before she was actually able to get that money. She was entitled to it, but it was so politically significant that there was considerable conflict over it to the extent that partly because of what was owed to her, her husband's heir actually ended up in open rebellion to the king. How many years then passed before Eleanor was able to marry again, this time to our key character in the story, Simon de Montfort? It was seven years later in 1238. Was getting married again problematic at this time? Well, as an extremely rich widow, particularly one with connections to the throne, in actual fact, she was a ripe contender for marriage. She could expect at the point of her divorce to be married again for political purposes in the same way that she had been as a young child. So the fact that she married again isn't particularly surprising, but the circumstances around her remarriage are particularly problematic because of the fact that in the aftermath of her husband's death, she had sworn to remain chaste and to dedicate her life to Christ. So she was going against that vow in marriage and there was a huge amount of outcry about that. Simon de Montfort actually had to travel to Rome and get a special dispensation from the Pope. Really? And where was the outcry from? Was it within the family? Was it sort of public opinion or what? It was sort of both and everything. There was particular criticism from... Richard of Cornwall, who was a brother to both her and Henry III. The Archbishop of Canterbury was very much against it. He had overseen her initial vow of chastity. So there was an awful lot of criticism, both of them and of Henry III, for having allowed it to happen. The marriage actually took place in his private chapel in his presence. So it was a, a subject of massive controversy. Right. But the fact that the king gave his seal of approval and allowed it to happen on his property was obviously quite important. Well, it was it was quite important at the time, but it's something that Henry III himself received criticism for. And given the extent of the outcry afterwards, he did, in fact, then turn around and claim that Simon had seduced his sister and they were temporarily exiled for a while. It sounds like the seeds are being sown of some sort of rift within the family 
um, yeah, and even politically. The whole situation in regards to from Eleanor's dowry to her marriage to the relationship with Henry III, it's constantly going up and down, depending on who has his favour at the time. There's never a sense of stability. You think he's on side, then suddenly he isn't. So she's always having to manoeuvre around the situation that she's currently in. Obviously, her marriage to William had not produced any children because she was so young. But Eleanor and Simon de Montfort did have a son. Um, What do we know about him? And also, did they have any other children? The son that died with Simon at Evesham was their eldest boy, Henry, who at that point was around 27 years old. He was born very, very soon after their marriage. But they also had five other children that survived into adulthood. Four boys and a girl, Simon, Amory, Guy, Richard and Eleanor. When she's married to Simon, is she sort of in her early 20s? Would that be right? Yes, yeah, mid-20s. Okay, so... so early, yeah, 22. Pr- prime sort of uh, time for having children, uh, biologically, yes. I suppose. Where did they live in the run-up to the Second Barons' War? Well, like all great landowners of the period, their estates were very geographically diverse, so they had a number of different residences that they moved around between. And actually also they were occasionally abroad. But their main seat was at Kenilworth, which was granted to them by Henry III in 1244 and had the status of of almost a royal palace that had been renovated extensively by Henry III and John before he gave it to them. And of course, Kenilworth Castle is an English heritage property that um, people can visit today. It is indeed. Well worth going to. Absolutely. So we talked about their family backgrounds, this second marriage now, the fact that she's going to be having children and... We're now getting to the point where we're leading up to the Second Barons' War. So what year are we in now? Well, the Second Barons' War is generally considered to have started from a military point of view in 1264, but it had started politically well before that with the provisions of Oxford and and various other more diplomatic conflicts. And the reasons for these are many and various, having to do with the changing political situation in the 13th century and conflicts within the aristocracy. But in particular, what you're seeing is an increase in unhappiness amongst what can be seen as the established elite, that you're getting a large number of foreigners coming in who have family connections to the royal family and that these people are being given estates, positions, money that the British aristocracy believe should be theirs by right. So you get debates that are are framed in almost xenophobic terms as Mm. foreigners coming over here. But in actual fact, it's very much about the wealth and power of a particular group of people. And I suppose this xenophobia is, we're talking about France, modern day France at this point, aren't we? Very much so. I mean, it's kind of ironic because Simon himself was French. Yes, but they were living over the Channel. And as we know from uh, even recent events, that when you live over the Channel, there's a sort of slightly mental divide, isn't there, between Britain and Europe? Uh, the, 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 the particular sort of group that was really causing problems were the relations of Henry III's mother's second marriage. So after the death of King John, she'd married again to Hugh de Lusigian who'd settled in England with his family and these people are getting a huge amount of royal patronage at the time. So it's effectively um, a bit like the the new people wading in on the sort of property and the territory of the established barons, landowners. And it it basically comes down to get off my land, really, doesn't it? It's nimbyism. Yeah, 
I mean, when you when you see the the rebels against the crown, the rebels are not people who are wanting to overthrow the crown and create an, an exciting new free society. These are the conservatives. These are the people that want to stop change mm. that they see as happening. The barons secured a key early victory in 1264 by capturing King Henry III and his son Edward, who obviously is heir to his throne. How did that happen? Well, there was a battle at Lewis in which actually the royalist side initially you'd have thought had had the advantage. They may have had twice as many men in their army. But over the course of the battle, which initially went Henry's way, Prince Edward, having routed part of the baronial army with his cavalry, continued pursuing them off the battlefield and left Henry's men exposed. So the baronial party at that point was able to launch an attack and defeat the main part of Henry's army before Edward came back. And as a result, the royalists ended up fleeing back into the castle and they were forced to sign what was known as the Mies of Lewis. We don't exactly know what that was, but it was a formal treaty in which they surrendered and the Lord Edward in particular was handed over as a hostage to the baronial party. Were Henry and Edward captured and kept together as a result of this? No. um, Prince Edward, often referred to at the time as the Lord Edward, was held as a hostage, as were various other important royal figures, such as Henry III's brother, Richard of Cornwall. Henry himself was not technically held in captivity, but obviously he was under a huge amount of duress during this time and his family members were being held hostage for his good behaviour. And then Eleanor, we return to her. She's the heroine of this story. How does she fit into all of this? Eleanor, as Simon's wife, is obviously in a quite interesting position between these two factions as wife versus sister of the two key figures. But she was very much politically on her husband's side and she is involved within the de Montfort party in terms of their activities. She's acting almost as a liaison. She's receiving letters, information is going through her. She also holds prisoners on behalf of her husband, including for a short time both her brother and her nephew. They're being held prisoner at the castle that she's controlling at the time. So she's not involved in the actual military battles, but she is a key figure within the broader baronial Montfortian cause. Yes, this is where it gets really quite sort of almost like the Sopranos or something, doesn't it? Because <laughs> yeah. this is a very family-based, uh, power-based, politically-based, uh, I mean, complicated story. As they're in captivity, she's still writing them letters, she's still sending them presents. Mm. The The language around the family and what's being said in all of this is is really interesting. Yeah, it really is. Because it it just complicates the whole thing. It's not us versus them anymore. It's kind of bloodlines and um, there's a conflict within that. There is. I mean, obviously, families in this period, particularly at an aristocratic level, don't function in quite the same way as families do today. They wouldn't have been brought up within the same household necessarily. They're not as emotionally close, perhaps, as we are. It's very difficult to judge that kind of thing. But family is still extremely important in this period. Absolutely. Because it's all about passing on your genes and then passing on your power through time, I suppose. Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the fact that Eleanor is sister to the king is really important in giving Simon his power. But then that's also what then allows him to capture and make war against the king and his heir. It's really interesting to think about and to put yourself in that situation. So is Eleanor holed up at Dover Castle at this point after... No. Okay. When does she go to Dover Castle? She doesn't go to Dover Castle until into the following year. In 
May, on the 28th of May, Prince Edward manages to escape from his captivity. And that is a massive turning point for the Montfodian regime. Ah. Within a matter of days, literally from the 28th of May when he escapes, just four days later on the 1st of June, Eleanor knows about it. And it moves from the castle that she's in at the time in Odiham down to Porchester in the company of her second son, Simon. And they move 42 miles in one day. Wow. This is a big deal. It, over the course of, sort of the previous six months, it had taken about one day to travel 15 miles. She was traveling about 15 miles in one day. So compare that to 42 miles in a day. Mm-hmm. You can really see that she's having to move for, because of this massive political change that's happened. And then she moves from Porchester to Dover over the course of the next few days, traveling about 30 miles a day and actually using that travel as a way to meet with key supporters on the route and try and continue to establish support for the Montfordian regime, even though this big political shift has just taken place. So where does Edward go to then, having escaped? He joins up with the Mortimer family at Wigmore Castle and he at that point takes over... The royalist military course he, he becomes the main military leader at this point right um, and starts campaigning in sort of the area of the welsh marches and his father king henry iii is still called the king but yes. he's still more or less handicapped at this point he's very very much the king at no point has there been any attempt to remove him from the position of king they were just removing him from the powers of the king yeah but yet the change when Edward moves gives Henry a lot more freedoms to act without repercussions to his heir. But it's Edward who really is leading the military side at this stage. OK. Eleanor is, has gone from Odiham to Porchester yes. to... To Dover. To Dover. Over the course of several days? Yes, over the course of several days. And she brings followers with her, is that right? She brings, her, she brings her household. So a noble household in this period is split. The husband has his own household, the wife has her household, the oldest children may have their individual households. So Eleanor brings her immediate household with her. So that includes all of her scribes, ladies-in-waiting. It might include laundress, cooks, the people that look after her horses, the people that look after furnishings and possessions and plate and well, that sort of thing. It's a large number of people that she's taking with her. And when they arrive at Dover Castle, do they kind of seize it? At this stage, the constable of Dover Castle is actually her eldest son, Henry. Ah. So she is going to a castle that is in the control of a member of her family. It's a key strategic location. But it's quite interesting that she is not staying at Porchester Castle, which is another castle controlled by her son. She's going to a place that is very important strategically in the country with its connection to the continent. It's right by the Sink ports, which are really important for movement around the channel in terms of the naval forces. So she's being placed into a castle that's strategically important by her family it's not just for her protection, it's because they're expecting her to do something when she's there. Yes, of course. And it being a safe house as well, I would have thought. Yeah, and potentially absolutely. It's, it's a dual function. And an escape route if she wants to get over yes. the channel. Yes. Makes sense. Well, I like her thinking already. Um, <laughs> I could see how she was a, a smart lady. So what happens when she's at the castle then? What's daily life like? The castle is going to have her household in it, but there are also people that are not part of her household in the castle. The deputy constable is still there with his garrison. The information that we have about daily life there is about her household and what was happening with her people. And we do know that she 
was eating in the Great Hall with her household for basically the entire time. The household continues to function smoothly. So although there's a political crisis happening elsewhere, basically everything carries on as it had been in her previous locations. She's bringing in food from all over Kent. Things are travelling down from Sandwich, from Canterbury, by boat, by cart. And she's entertaining guests at the castle, including important people from the Think Ports and nobility in the area. So life, would you say, is it quite stable at this point? I mean, we've, we've still got the situation where Edward is running amok and yeah, uh, Henry is less shackled, as he, less shackled than he was. It's less stable in that the regime as a whole is less stable. So she's more actively, it looks like she's actively trying to promote the regime by maintaining contacts with significant people. But from a daily life point of view, the food and drink communications are carrying on basically as they had been before. But I suppose politically, really, the tables have begun to turn and the rebellion is slipping away from the de Montforts, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Uh, And you you can see that starting to happen. And obviously that comes to a head in the Second Barons' War when the key figures, her husband Simon de Montfort, dies at the Battle of Evesham. This is a really key turning point for her story. How do things change for Eleanor from this point? Well, Eleanor is now very much in the spotlight. She's a key member of the fallen regime and she's also in a strategically important castle at Dover. So what she chooses to do next has incredible potential to make a difference. And what she chooses to do is stay there in direct contrast to some other people. So, for example, the wife of Hugh Dispenser, who also died at Evesham and was in control of the Tower of London, another important place, chooses to immediately surrender it. The other big difference is that now the political environment in the country is far less favourable for her. So rather than her food coming from 30, 40 miles away and entertaining important people, you've suddenly gone to a position where you can see that the castle is isolated. Just before, in the couple of days before the Battle of Evesham, there's a note that they brought oxen to the castle overnight. So they're not travelling at normal circumstances. They're they're having to suddenly bring food in. Mm. And then you increasingly see food becoming difficult to get hold of, that they're no longer bringing it from long distances. They're making use of the resources that are in the castle already. And eventually they actually have to start raiding for oxen and sheep. So they become sheep rustlers. Yes. <laughs> criminals, effectively. Yeah, and whilst at this stage Dover Castle isn't actually under siege, the fact that she's not able to buy food and transport food easily in the way that she had been shows that she's living in a very, very different climate. To yes, before. and it's a war and it's all dependent on supply chains, really. Yeah. It's worth saying as well, I think, that not only Simon de Montfort, her husband, but also her son... Her first son, is that right? Also dies in the Battle of of Evesham. Henry. Yes, Henry. And 40 other key supporters as well. It's an extremely unusual medieval battle for the number of high-status aristocrats who die during it. Normally, that many wouldn't die. That is a very, very, very severe body blow, isn't it, really? How did she react to that? Do we know? Well, a few days after the Battle of Evesham, her behaviour changes. Up until then, she had consistently been eating with the rest of her household in the Great Hall. And you get this sudden 10-day gap when she isn't. She's eating privately. She's separating herself from the rest of her household. 
You also see cloth being bought for morning clothes, changes in diet, so they're not eating meat or fish anymore, which suggests they're fasting, and alms being given for Simon's soul. So there's a number of activities going on that show mourning taking place within her household. We know, of course, that Eleanor decided to retain control of Dover Castle rather than surrendering it or disappearing off to France or something. Why did she reach that decision? Well, looking at her actions during this time insofar as we know them, it appears that she made the decision to use Dover Castle and its strategic location on the coast near to France as a means of starting to siphon money and certain members of her family out of the country. So rather than just leaving herself and escaping, she actually brings her youngest son, Richard, to the castle, buys him new clothes and sends him to France. Based on a letter from Henry, it looks like she did the same thing to her second youngest son as well, Amory. And she also manages to get 11,000 marks out of the country and into France. It's very difficult to do a direct comparison between medieval money and modern money. So I'm going to give you two different comparisons to what that could mean. If you were to spend 11,000 marks on food, you would get the same amount of food as spending six million pounds today. However, if you compare it to the proportion of the country's economy as a whole, you're talking about around two billion pounds that she's taking out of the country. Crikey. So she's using her time in Dover to make sure that her family are in France and safe, not just herself, and that once they get there, they're going to have a really good quality of life. So she does what any mother would do, really, which is to do the best for her children and to think of them first. Yeah, that looks like that's what's happening, yeah. She's taking on the role of matriarch in the family. Whilst her second son, Simon, is now officially head of the family as her husband's heir, she is very much acting still in the family's interest as a whole. This sets up this interesting vacuum that she has to fill because obviously her husband is dead, so is her first son in battle. She's really taken on this strong matriarchal role. Is there any precedent in English history for a woman taking on the might of the monarchy? Well, because the way that households were set up with husbands and wives having separate households and often living in different places, it's not terribly unusual to find that a castle that is besieged actually has the woman rather than the man in it at the time. Technically, she is the person who's holding the castle. So this definitely isn't the first time that this has happened. I mean, there's an example in the Battle of Lincoln in the First Baron's War, sort of 40 years earlier. In that case, it's not the castle is being held in favour of the crown rather than against it, but you do see the same kind of situation repeating itself. What's really different with Eleanor is that we actually have the information to see what she is doing. Mm. So we can say for definite that she herself is taking action and making decisions rather than just that she happens to be there at the time. Okay, we're in 1265, obviously now, and it hasn't been long that this rebellion has been in place and now it's very much failing and she's almost trying to push people out to France, her family members out to France and set them up for what's going to happen next. But the immediate thing then is this siege. When does this happen? We don't know exactly the date, but it's within three months of the Battle of Evesham. The Battle of Evesham was on the 4th of August, and we know that by the 26th of October, the siege is over. So it's probably in the days immediately before the 26th of October that it took place. And is it just guesswork how long the siege would have lasted? It doesn't appear to have been very long from the information available. It is described briefly in a couple of chronicles, 
So what we know about it is that Eleanor was holding some political captives on the royalist side within the keep at Dover and they appear to have managed to escape possibly with support of members of the garrison who had seen which way the wind was blowing and realised that they were no longer on the winning side. So these previously prisoners are now in control of the main keep at the castle and are attacking the rest of the castle from inside. Ah. Um, And Edward then hears about this and comes and besieges from the outside. So the garrison and the castle and Eleanor are in a situation where they're being attacked from two directions, both from inside and outside, and that's not a sustainable situation. So it would probably only have been a matter of a few days. Yeah. The game is up by that point. Well, that's um, probably the worst scenario if if you're heard then. What happens next? Well, there was a peace settlement agreed between Eleanor and her nephew, Prince Edward, in which Eleanor and her daughter are allowed to travel to France to be in exile there. And the rest of the people within the keep are basically pardoned. They're allowed to leave. They're not going to be imprisoned, but the goods and everything that are in the castle have to remain behind and become the property of the crown. So she escapes with her life? She escapes with her life. She escapes with her daughter. And we do know that her supporters within the castle did receive their land back, that the peace treaty was honoured, but what Edward said would happen did. This all sounds very chivalric and quite civilised, but um, you know, it surprises me that um, she wasn't executed by King Henry III when he retained full grip on power. Why was that? Well, two reasons. One, she is his sister. I mean, the peace negotiation that took place when Edward writes about what's happened, he actually describes her as my very dear aunt. So we're still dealing with this family situation and killing your sister, even executing her, would not be sending the right sort of messages you wouldn't want to do that but also there's a the very practical thing that at this point in history it's actually incredibly difficult to execute someone for this sort of thing let alone a woman who hasn't actively taken up arms hmm. there's actually some evidence that henry had a dedicated group of knights at the battle of Evesham whose task was to find and kill simon de montfort because if he had survived that battle, there wasn't very much that they could have done with him. There wasn't the laws to execute him for treason that you see later on. Ah, interesting. Probably what might have happened if she hadn't gone into exile was she'd just been kept in captivity in this country. So going into exile and going into a convent there is sort of, from the point of view of the king, not significantly different to having her in captivity in England and her going into a convent there. Mm. So there are basically blood-related, family-related and yet-to-be-invented legal reasons yes. why she escapes with her life and her daughter is allowed with her to go to France. To an extent, her leaving the country is to Henry's advantage as well. I mean, he'd actually sent a letter back in September specifically saying that she wasn't allowed to leave the country without his permission, but that was partly because he didn't want her to be taking her wealth with her, but she's already done that. So at this stage... There's not a a significant advantage to Henry in keeping her in the country. Right, because he's effectively won now, hasn't he? The tables have completely been turned. Yeah. There's some ongoing conflict for the next couple of years that's fairly sporadic. You don't see really the complete end of the war until 1267 and the Dictum of Kenilworth. But basically, by this point, it's pockets of unrest. The king is very much back in control. Yes. So we're talking about this today, obviously, on our podcast. How do we get all this information? Where did all this story and chronicling come from? Well, we're really, really lucky with Eleanor to have a document surviving of her actual accounts. 
what's known as her household role, her accounts, for a period of seven months from before the escape of Edward through to shortly before the siege at Dover Castle. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite run up to the bit that we'd really, really like to know about. But that account's role is highly unusual for this period. It's the earliest surviving account's role that isn't actually for the royal household. And it allows us to see what she's doing on a day-by-day basis, where she is. You've got names of people who are dining with her. You've got the exact amounts of food they're eating, where that food's come from. You've got names of servants and messengers and where the messengers are going. So it's a level of information that you cannot get from the normal chronicle accounts that tell you about this period. Is it a bit like the sort of document that you put together for your accountant? Is it sort of facts and figures? Yes, it's facts and figures. What we've got is mostly relating to food and drink. We know things like horses that are in the stable, but then also expenses for clothing and gifts in some cases and things like that. So it's very much the expenses to feed and look after her household, but also then some of her personal expenses as well. And you say that this household role doesn't obviously tell the the full story, including the part about the siege, but how valuable a document is this about Eleanor's story? We could not tell you this level of information about Eleanor without it. The things that I've told you about how fast she's moving, about what she's doing in Dover, that all comes from the role. Without this document, all I could really tell you is that Eleanor was at Dover Castle at a point when there was a siege. We wouldn't know why she was there. Um, We wouldn't know what she'd done really with in terms of her family, other than that we would know that she'd got money out of the country. It's an absolutely extraordinary document to have about a woman at this time, Mm. really. Her actions then, we talked about her character traits at the start, her being a very strong and intelligent woman and um, quite defiant of the patriarchy, you could say. What do her actions say about the role of medieval women in conflict? Was she ahead of her time? Well, that's a really interesting question to ask because how much is it that she was ahead of her time and how much is it that we know more about her than we know about other women of the period certainly she was a woman in extraordinary circumstances who made use of those circumstances in a way that not everyone did as i said the wife Judith Spencer didn't take advantage of the fact that she was in a key strategic location in the same way eleanor's choices are clearly significant here and she was clearly trusted and considered an important part of the Montfordian regime by her husband and you, you can see that from the way that he he looks after her and sen- sending her messages and sending her prisoners but as i said we have this wonderful document about eleanor which we don't have for other women in similar siege situations that allows us to see what she is doing as opposed to just what's happening around her. Mm. Um, And I do think that if we had more similar information, we would get more of an appreciation for women's role within warfare from a non-military point of view in terms of what she's doing with gaining support by communicating with key significant figures, the Mm. amount of messengers that are going in and out of her household from important people, including the King of France, as well. It suggests that possibly similar things were happening with other women and we just don't know. Sure. Being a cog for the war effort effectively and and a facilitator rather than someone who's actively, you know, brandishing weapons. Not actively holding a sword and brandishing weapons. Yeah, exactly. But still, yeah, a key part of the effort and not just sort of a meek submissive little wife sat in the corner doing embroidery. Yeah, staying loyal to the cause and loyal to her husband and then also loyal to her children as well. Yeah. 
her story then, how does it fit within the greater story of the changing relationship between royalty and their subjects during the 1200s, during the 13th century? Because we have two barons wars during this period and we have a lot of change if you look at the number of kings who come and go. Yeah, the 13th century is a really interesting period in terms of the change that takes place. Right at the start, you've got the loss of Normandy. So you've gone from the king of England being king of what's effectively an empire that covers a large part of France as well as England to a king who is focusing on England, Wales and Ireland. And realistically, that's predominantly England. So he's around more. The relationship that he has with his barons has changed. The land holding has changed massively in that you've no longer got people straddling the English Channel in the way you had. That impacts on relationships that the barons have with the King of England and with the King of France. And the wars that you see during this period are partly a mechanism for dealing with this changed situation in the country as a whole. And you say we've got the First Barons' War, which took place during the reign of King John and just into the child reign of Henry III and the Second Barons' War as well. This is the period when the Magna Carta is signed famously by King John during the First Barons' War. And an awful lot of the debates that you see happening during the Second Barons' War are effectively developments from that. They are versions adapted from the Magna Carta and the provisions within it. But actually, the 13th century is also quite interesting in that it's one of the very few centuries in English history in which the crown passed from father to son all the way through without a change. And actually, Edward, when he eventually came to the throne as Edward I, was able to do so even though he wasn't in the country until two years after his father had died. So Mm. it's a real contrast between multiple civil wars, multiple active military rebellions, and also the very stable continuation of royal power from father to son. Yes, and I think as well, the relationship between the common man and royalty also changes, doesn't it? Obviously, the barons have imposed their will through rebellion and through Magna Carta, and the king is realising slowly that he has to work in concert with his barons. you're, You're starting to get probably what can arguably be seen as the earliest stages of what becomes the constitutional monarchy. The Montfortian regime has the king still as officially the head of state, but then a council of barons who are actually running the country. And this requirement for the king to answer to his barons is something that you see repeatedly in the conflicts of this period. Yes, and I think we see it later again in the later civil war, the English civil wars of the royalists and the parliamentarians, don't we? Yes. It's an ongoing ongoing battle. It's why Magna Carta is constantly being reissued. The, the king is constantly saying, yes, look, I agree to be bound by the rules. I agree to do this, almost in exchange for not being controlled by a council. The council thing keeps coming up and then being pushed back, but we'll reissue Magna Carta again instead. Lastly then, Eleanor, a fantastic woman with a really fantastic story. How can we find out a bit more about her? There's a really good biography of her by Louise Wilkinson called Ellen de Montfort, a rebel countess in medieval England. So I would have a look at that if you want to know more. Catherine, the very final question I'd like to ask, and I think everyone else also wants to know this who who, who listened so far, <laughs> is what happens to Eleanor and her family now that they've left England and they've set themselves up in France? Well, Eleanor left the country in October and 
about a year later, her two older surviving sons, Simon and Guy, arrive in France as well, and they're briefly reunited. But Eleanor herself becomes a nun in an abbey about 70 miles south of Paris, and she then eventually dies there 10 years later in 1275. <laughs> You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Coming up next week, we'll look at an innovative project to reveal the history of Bolsover Castle in Derbyshire. I was given quite a bit of freedom with this in terms of designing for the project, actually, because the brief was to design sort of a whimsical, fantastical version of 17th century clothes. So it didn't have to necessarily be completely historically accurate. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>